0: Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, my story kind of started a few years back, and it actually came to a head on a Sunday morning in the middle of a sermon because I got up here to preach and open up my Bible, and I realized that I could not read the words that were on the uh, passage. And uh, and so ever since that time, I, I've started printing out uh, the Scripture passage on on a piece of paper in a very large font, double um, spaced, and I am on the hunt for a 12-font, single-column ESV Bible. If you know where one is, please let me know. I have looked far and wide for one, and I don't think it yet exists. I also was able to uh, get a set of reading glasses, which I brought them home after I went to the doctors, and Diane said, why didn't you take me with you why don't you ask me to speak into your choice of, uh, of frames? I didn't, but I'm probably due for a new pair. Um, the passage that we're looking at this morning, it, it, it's, it's about struggling to see. Um, struggling to see Jesus clearly, to see him for who he is. And it's a struggle that every one of us, I think, can relate to. Um, to see Jesus for who he is. And, and I do want to tell you that up until yesterday afternoon at 1 o'clock, our plan for this morning uh, was to have a dear missionary couple, the Laos from Cambodia, were scheduled to come here and speak. Uh, at 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon, we made the call. Guys, don't take the three-hour drive from middle, central Jersey up here if we may have to cancel our service um, with the weather event we just put them on hold but it also means that i had no intention of preaching this morning um, and uh, and so the the message that i'm about to bring to you it's it's been percolating in my heart for a while and i'm always excited about that but uh, it may not be quite as polished as uh, i typically like to be as we as I come up here on a on a Sunday morning. So um, I don't know what you're going to get, but I'm just offering that disclaimer um, from the onset. Uh, we have been uh, making our way through the gospel of Mark. We started back in September um, in a series called The Journey. And, and Mark shares for us the story of Jesus, and specifically the story of Jesus and his disciples, and their journey of discovering Jesus for who he is and seeing him clearly. And as we look through their stories and their encounters with Jesus, uh, I think it's helpful for us to understand and make sense of our own stories and and how we ourselves are discovering Jesus uh, um, in in our own faith journeys. So so this morning, the passage we're at, uh, we're going to be in in chapter 8, and this passage in particular is sort of like a hinge. Um, it summarizes everything we've looked at up to this point, the first eight chapters, the first seven chapters of Mark that we've been th- looking through. But it also sets us up for what's ahead as, it, as we launch into something new in, in, in the next section of Scriptures. So if you have a Bible, um, I do want to invite you to open it up to, to Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to read. Uh, The first 13 verses, it says this, "'In those days when again a great crowd had gathered "'and they had nothing to eat, "'he called his disciples to him and said to them, "'I have compassion on the crowd "'because they have been with me now three days "'and have nothing to eat. "'And if I send them away hungry to their homes, "'they will faint on the way. "'And some of them have come from far away.'" And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people the bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Okay, so if you have been with us uh, over the past several weeks, you might be saying some of this sounds kind of familiar. Um, I think we've heard some of these before, and, and if that's kind of how you're thinking, that is, that is not a mistake. This is like deja vu all over again, because everything that we have just read about, we've already seen, and it's happened before, and it's happening again, and that's part of the point that this passage is making. And so here we see that great, ga- great crowds are gathering around Jesus, right? Right? Again, we've seen that on and on throughout the the gospel of of Mark. And then we see Jesus' compassionate heart that breaks wide open as he sees their needs and he wants to meet those needs. And we've seen that before as well. And we see it again. And then Jesus shares his heart with his disciples, with his closest followers, and and they don't get it again, right? Right? Um, that's kind of where the emphasis is on this passage is on the interaction between Jesus and his disciples and their failure to, to get on board with what Jesus is doing. You know, it's a reminder, if nothing else, that Jesus is so incredibly patient with us, with, with dull disciples, not just like them, Because them is us, right? We can be so much like that. We can be so hard-headed towards the things of God, and Jesus is so long-suffering, so patient. and, And the Lord gives us opportunities to learn the lessons he wants us to learn when we miss it. And so when we keep on missing it, he keeps on bringing them before us again and again. So if you happen to find yourself in a pattern of life where you find yourself in the same situation and you're like, Lord, what is going on? Why am I here again? Ask him that. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? What do you want me to learn? Because there may be be something to that. And so in this case, uh, there is this supply and demand issue that the disciples uh, are stuck on. And this is their reason. They're saying, Jesus, we cannot opt into what your agenda is because of the supply and demand issue. You've got 4,000 people who need to eat, and we have just got this very small amount of bread and food, and, and this is all we've got. And what we've got is simply not enough. Um, that's the disciples' rationale. And that continues to be the response to Jesus' agenda that many Christ followers today exhibit as well, right? This, this mindset that, that short-circuits so much of God's work, so, mer- so much of what Jesus' agenda is. And, and this is one of those primary fundamental lessons of faith that uh, That Jesus desires to grow in his followers, replacing that false assumption that what we have is not enough that that lie and replacing it with the truth, that with Jesus, whatever we have will always be enough once we've placed what we have in His hands, let him take it and 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 so when it comes to our own lives, when it comes to seeing what Jesus wants done and our our excuses for not being about it, Uh, you know, the reality is that when it comes to our resources, uh, very few of us, from a supply and demand point of view, we don't have enough. We don't have enough to give. And if it simply is a matter of supply and demand, very few of us can be generous, can't we, right? There, there really is one choice, and that choice is to trust, to, to, to trust Jesus. That's exactly what he wants to challenge his followers to do, to, to loosen the grip of what it is that we're holding in our hands, little or much, place it in his hands, and watch what happens. That's, that's essential for the journey of faith. That's essential for understanding and comprehending who Jesus is, what he wants to do. And that's also the place where we start to, in very real time, see God at work in our lives, right? Where we are, are in this place where, where the demands exceed the supply and we say, Lord, can you do, would you do, we need you to do what you alone can do, Lack of supply is never the limiting factor. Faith is the limiting factor. And you may have heard it before, um, but it may be something we need to just remind ourselves of again is that phrase, I can't. That's antithetical uh, to the life of faith. It's antithetical to what it is that Jesus wants to do with us. And so in this passage... There is one important distinction, something new, something different, something we haven't seen before, and it has to do with the location where where Jesus is is working this this miracle, where he's multiplying the the, the loaves. Because last time we saw him feed the 5,000, that was in Jewish territory. It was on the home turf, But, but this time... He's not on the home turf. He's he's away. He's on the the visitor's field. He's he's in Gentile country, and what we're seeing is the scope of his work, of his agenda, of his intentions expanding, because his heart is not just for this this group of people that he kind of circles around and says, this is who I care about, and that's it. See, Jesus doesn't just care about some people. He cares about all people people who are like us, and people who are nothing like us. And that includes you, and it includes me. And what's so ironic is he goes from this miracle, they, they go on their boat, they get back to the homeland, they come back to Jewish territory, and the moment they sit down on the ground, the conflict breaks out. The Pharisees come out and they start picking a fight just like they had in the past. Again, this is, this is another thing that we've seen before. We're seeing it again. Jesus just does not fit into that traditional religious mindset. The Pharisees can't make sense of what he's doing, and they're just looking for a reason to discredit, to discredit his work. And, and, and Jesus, it says, it says, Jesus sighs. I think it's fascinating that they actually include this. Jesus sighs. It's like, oh. Oh, you know that side, don't you? Right? You've you you've you've, you've experienced that where you are just like at your end for dealing with something that's just so exasperating, so exhausting. He's dealing with these religious leaders that he just can't he just can't get anywhere with and he says he says I'm out of here. He, he gets back on the boat and he sails away It's, it's a little bit like a An experience I had yesterday, I went to the tire shop yesterday. Um, This is a tire shop that uh, my my daughter needed tires for her car. And so I I took the time, I made the phone calls, called in advance, made the appointment, got the price quote. And and just before I was ready to hang up, they said, OK, we're going to send an email confirmation for your reservation. I said, great, I appreciate that. I said, is the price quote going to be on that email confirmation? They said, no. I I should have realized right then and there that something was going to be up, so I wrote the numbers down that they quoted me on the phone, and we went there yesterday morning. My my daughter got up at 8.30 in the morning on a Saturday, which for a 17-year-old girl is a big deal. We went to the tire shop, and uh, surprise, the, the price at the shop, before I dropped the keys off and left and I checked, was a whole lot more than the price that I was quoted on the phone. And so I said, uh, no thanks, Mavis, I am out. Just the same way, similar to the way that Jesus walked out. Um, he walks in and walks out to his home territory in Jerusalem, or in Israel. He gets back on the boat. And as he's back on the boat, he, he strikes up this discussion with his disciples. His disciples who seem to be stuck on dull. And and here's how that conversation goes. It says, Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Okay, so they're on the boat, they're traveling, and you get this sense here that Jesus' disciples, these people who have spent so much time with him, are they destined to just stay dull to the things of God forever? Are they going to be stuck on dull forever? Because they sure seem to be making zero progress. If anything, they seem to be regressing Right? And that's kind of the question at hand. They've spent so much time with him. But time with Jesus hasn't had any effect on building up their faith, their eyes to see. And, and so here's what Jesus does. He talks about the fact that they only have one loaf of bread. And he tries to shift their focus from the physical uh, to the spiritual, from the temporal to the eternal. But, but the disciples, they just don't get it they do not make that transition. And, and by the way, th- that is a little bit of what this fast is all about that some of us are, are, are taking part in. It's, it's a way of taking our focus off the physical and putting it on the, 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 the spiritual. And so Jesus uses that, that analogy of, of physical bread, and he says, beware of the leaven. Be, beware of this attitude of, of both the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, both the religious leaders with all of their rules, all of their regulations, as well as the Roman authorities with their power trips and their authoritative attitudes. Those kinds of attitudes are like yeast that rises on a loaf of setting bread. Don't, don't let that religious legalism And don't let that power-playing attitude set into your life. He's giving his followers this warning, but the disciples, they're just stuck. They seem to be hopelessly stuck. Jesus, what are we going to do? We've only got one loaf of bread. That's where they're at. This is after seeing Jesus multiply. Bread to feed 4,000, which came on the heels of multiplying bread to feed 5,000, they're still concerned about where they're going to have enough bread. That's just where they are. They are completely stuck. They cannot see. And, and Jesus even says it. it this, is what he, this is what he asked them. It's a rhetorical question. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have minds, but they don't perceive. Their hearts are hardened to the things of God. And so all of these sensory perceptions, these physical sensory perceptions that we know of, that we're aware of, that we're familiar with, they also have spiritual implications. They help us understand and make sense of what is happening on a spiritual level, but their spiritual senses are just not operating That's their status. Jesus' followers. These are the insiders, right? Just remember that. This is not the Pharisees. This isn't the bad guys on the outsiders. The question is, what are we going to do? How are they ever going to get past that? The next scene um, is going to set that up just a little bit. So here's what it says next. It says, "They, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. This is the beginning of an eye-opening experience. And and there's a miracle that's reported here, but there's more to it than just that. This is a strategically placed episode in this storyline that Mark has been writing. And what we see here is a physical illustration of where the disciples were spiritually, spiritually, Okay, And so this is a foreshadowing of how their journey with Jesus was going to unfold and progress. So remember, Jesus had just described them as having eyes but not being able to see. And, and here, the next scene, we see him opening the eyes of someone who was blind, not able to see. Um, and so for those of us who understand that there is a dullness, that there is just this This inability sometimes to just understand and perceive the things of God. What Jesus is about, the good news, is that Jesus is able to open eyes. Not just physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. And that's that's what we need. So where this man was physically is where the disciples were spiritually. And what happened to him is a foreshadowing of what was going to happen with the disciples and so you see there's this two-stage this two process. First time um, that, that this happens in the way that Jesus performs a miracle. First, he goes from his eyes being closed to his sight being cloudy. And then he goes from cloudy to clear. There was a process to it. So, so take note of that in your own walk with the Lord. There are breakthroughs, but maybe sometimes it's not just a breakthrough. Oftentimes it's a series of breakthroughs. There's a stage, there's a a process to it. It can be an unfolding thing. And sometimes, you know, we feel the pressure, we hear stories, we hear testimonies, and someone says, this was the moment. You know, I once was blind, but now I see. And if that's your story, if that's the way... The Lord met you, and the Holy Spirit worked in your life, and that's great. But it's not the only way, right? That's Saul's story, but um, but with Peter's, with the disciples, it's a very different, it's a very different story, a very different unfolding. There was a stage. First was, do you see anything? No, and then do you see something? Yes, and then eventually, do you see it all? Yes. The main point being this is that this process continues as they walked and continued their journey with Jesus. And so if you are walking this path of faith, if you are living out life with Jesus and you're still not quite sure how it all works, what it's all about, how to make sense of who he is, just keep on that journey. Keep on walking and watch him um, and watch what opens up. Um, so let's, let's see where it goes from there. It says this next. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. All right, so here, this is sort of the moment, right? For those of you who have been with us since the beginning, we said that this is the entire reason Mark wrote this gospel for us to answer that question, who is Jesus, to show us clearly who he is and so this has been building up for the last eight chapters here we are in this strategic monumental moment and it happens in a very particular setting let's look at that first it happens in this place called Caesarea Philippi again he is Jesus is not this is not in the home territory he's way beyond the borders of Israel as a matter of fact this is the farthest point north of Jerusalem that Jesus ever travels. Caesarea Philippi is a pagan place. It is filled with people who are far away from God, but Jesus is making a point that they may be far away from God, that they are not forsaken by God. And so what is about to go down here, this milestone moment that's going to take place here isn't just for the home team. It isn't just for the good guys in 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 Israel, for God's chosen people. This is something that's going to apply to the entire world. And so he asks the question, the question that this entire book was written to answer. And he starts out with the word on the street: what are people saying about me? All kinds of things, Jesus. They're good things. They're exalting you as someone special. But then he turns it very personal. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And I do believe this is the question. I do believe that this is the question that if we can hear Jesus through the Holy Spirit asking each of us very personally, who do you say that I am? Not just a moral teacher, not just an example. Peter answers the question and he says, you are the Christ, Uh, Christ is not Jesus' middle name. Um, Christ is a title. Christ means that he is the, the chosen one who had been promised by God from the very beginning to come and to save the world, to set everything that is wrong right again. You are the one this world has been waiting for, not just teacher, not just prophet, not just good guy, Way, way more than that. The one and the only. So here for the first time, someone finally gets it. Peter answers. And, and it's what's called, uh, it's been known as, the, this is the great confession. Jesus Christ. Uh, understand what this is setting up, okay? Because many people will say, you know what? Uh, you can choose your God, and, and so long as you're sincere about it, then it doesn't matter who your God is, just choose the God that works for you. That kind of mentality, that kind of mindset only works if you understand our world and our existence as a box, and everything is just within the box of what we can see in our own senses and, and understand and feel, but... Um, The moment you talk about the reality of a creator, an eternal God who created this planet, who is the author of your life, who is responsible for the trees that you see and the mountains and the skies and the stars, creator God, that we are created and that, in fact, this creator God has revealed himself to us in ways throughout history, uh, not only in in the creation, but in, in, in prophecy through his people, and that this God actually broke into human history in the form of a person, then all of that kind of understanding goes out the window. It's not an option, right? This goes way far beyond just My personal choice about which God I want to believe in and how I want to set up my own personal belief system. God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ, foreshadowed thousands of years before he came, written about in the prophets, and here he is. Peter says, you are that one. That's something you have to reckon with. That's something you cannot dismiss. This is not just Fabrication. Uh, this is revelation, and and Jesus charges his disciples upon that confession. He says, "Keep it quiet." The reason why he says that it's going to become clear right now because um, they have the right identity at this point, but they have the wrong idea. So here, here's what here's what comes next. He says this. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father, with his holy angels. So there's this incredible explanation and this invitation and we see kind of that illustration playing out because the disciples they're no longer blind, right? They went from seeing nothing to seeing something, but the Jesus that they're seeing is still not crystal clear. Something less than that. And and so Jesus goes on and he He lays out for them. He speaks plainly to them. He says, this is where where I'm going. This is where I'm heading to. I'm heading to suffering, rejection, being killed, and then finally after that, being resurrected. Peter hears that message, and he sees it as something utterly incompatible with everything that he understood about this, this title, the Christ that he had just identified Jesus as the Messiah. In his mind, the Messiah was meant to rule and to reign. He was going to lead God's people out of oppression into glory and victory. They equated the Christ with a military power, someone who was strong enough to marshal God's people against the forces of the Roman Empire. The only way that they saw the Christ was through... the grid of politics and power. And that's, that is a lot like many how many Christ followers see it today as well. Unable to comprehend Christ apart from politics and power. And Jesus says, everything you know is wrong. You've got to detox from that kind of mindset, that kind of attitude. And in his reply to Peter, this is, up to this point, these are his strongest words spoken up to this point. Understand that he doesn't save his strongest words for the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He doesn't even reserve it for the Romans. He directs it to his disciples. He rebukes Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. See, there was this satanic strategy For Jesus to avoid the cross and go straight to the throne, to reign without suffering, without saving. And Peter was all about that. And so Peter kind of goes from hero to zero. He gets who Jesus is, but he misses what he came to do. Jesus kind of says, this is what it's about. You have set your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Your mind is set on getting power, not experiencing pain. Your mind is set on taking, not giving. Your mind is set on serving or being served instead of serving yourself. And he says, that, that's just not going to work. You're never going to comprehend me. There is no way to make sense of who Jesus is apart from understanding what he came here to do. And so understand this, until you can make sense of the cross, of that picture, of that image, of Jesus' bloodied body, nails through his wrists, head pierced with that crown of thorns, you can look at that, and you can say, I understand what that's about. If we don't get that, we don't get him. And so at this point, the disciples see something, and what they see is real, but they still got a lot to learn. They got a lot to learn, just like you and just like me, right? This, this experience of growing in our walk and our relationship with the Lord, it's ongoing. And so how do we set our mind on the things of God instead of the things of man? That's, that's where we're going, In the next few weeks ahead, Jesus extends this invitation. He opens it up not just to his disciples, but to the crowds who are watching anyone. He says, You can follow me, you can walk with me, you can do life with me, but know before you start where it is I'm leading to. What's going to be involved in it? Self denial, letting go of your rights, letting go of your wants. Letting go of living for me and myself. Picking up your cross. At this stage, there was not an equation between Jesus and the cross. All they knew at this stage was that a cross was an instrument of of death. It would have been like saying, pick up your electric chair. And he says, follow me. Follow me because what I'm asking you to do is where I am going um, come to the end of yourself, stop leading yourself, follow Jesus. And, and, and so the reality is, as, as we are understanding, making sense of what it looks like to do life with Jesus, understand that it is not the life to follow if your goal is to just make your life easier, right? If, if your goal is, I just want to eliminate as much pain as possible and have a trouble-free life, Jesus is not the person to follow. He is not going to make your life easier. That life of self-denial is not the easiest life. It's not the fast track to a life of ease and pleasure and privilege. But make no mistake, it may not be easier, but he promises it is always better. It is always better. And so there's this paradox that he points out that, that is calling us to live out our lives following him, and it will only make sense if we keep the end in mind, eternity in sight. So he says, if you live for yourself and, and you, for your own life, for, for meaning and fulfillment and just try to do it all and make it all about you, then that meaning, that fulfillment is going to slip through your fingers like, like water. It's just going to fall out. And so he unapologetically says, live for me. Make Jesus the number one most important thing, not yourself. And he says, with that, you'll find that life of meaning, that life of fulfillment. You'll find your cup full and overflowing. So we don't seek fulfillment. We seek Jesus. And fulfillment and satisfaction is the outcome. That's the paradox. And the invitation is to really live out life at the level of the soul. He says, what what do you give in exchange for the soul? See, so often we live our lives from the physical perspective. What do I need physically? What do I want physically? Um, But there are spiritual realities. Number one being... That you have a soul, not that you even you are a soul in the deepest part of who you are. You you have a body and you are a soul. You, at the deepest part of who you are, is alive to God. That it transcends and goes beyond just the physical. Um, the challenge is living in this in this. Um, sinful and adulterous generation, as Jesus calls it, is to just lock our sights on just the physical and lose sight of the spiritual and the eternal. Jesus says if you do that, it's an absolutely tragic, disastrous strategy to live life because nothing matters more than your soul Your physical health matters, but not as much as your soul. Your bank account matters. It matters nothing compared to your soul. The titles you have, the cars you drive, the house you live in, the memberships you belong to, the friends you have, nothing of that matters compared to your soul. And and Jesus came to address our lives at the soul level. He is the Christ. He came to rescue and he will return to reign. He came first to sacrifice, to give his all for us. And he's coming at the end of history to to rule and to reign. And so we choose carefully how we live our lives. We choose carefully what we see, what we focus on, what we give our attention to. In the coming weeks, we're going to see and learn more about what it looks like to follow a Savior who came to serve. It's, it's paradigm exploding. And in the course of that, I hope that our eyes will continue to open, that maybe they'll go from, from closed to cloudy, and then maybe in the weeks ahead, they'll go from cloudy to clear, and we will see him more clearly. Uh, we will follow him close more closely. And we'll love him with all that we are.